Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham. Took last week off because it was my study week. Excited to be back with another episode. I want to take the opportunity in this episode to record something I've been meaning to record. And I think as we enter into Black History Month, now is a great time to do it. I want to record a follow-up podcast to the series I did on race in America. Chances are, if you're listening to this, then you probably listened to that series. Maybe not. If you haven't, I do encourage you to go back and listen in response to the aftermath of George Floyd and um, all that was transpiring in our nation. I I recorded a three-part series that was my hopefully Christian assessment of things, both the history of race in America and where we find ourselves. And you can go back and listen to that. But you don't have to listen to those in order to follow along with this one. I think it can stand on its own. Uh, But it is a follow-up to that series. So those podcasts on race have become by far our most listened to uh, podcasts and definitely the ones that have garnered the most feedback from all over the place, really all over the world. A lot of good feedback that I'm very thankful for. Um, some very fair critiques and criticisms that I'm likewise thankful for and, and, and have led to some of the follow-up points I want to make here. A lot of questions and whatnot. And so because it did receive so much attention, I thought it did warrant a follow-up where I engage the most significant um, thoughts and questions I received. And so that's what this podcast is going to be. I think uh, months later, so much has transpired even since I recorded those that um, I need I need to revisit it and and add some clarifying thoughts and answer some questions. Now, there is so much I could say. I could have a whole other series on this, but what I've decided to do is reduce it down to, to the three main follow-up points that I really want to make. Um, these are kind of independent, standalone points on their own, but just observations that I think are important for me to say. So let me just go through each of those, and I hope they help add to the discussion. Here's the first. When I recorded the podcast series, I was concerned about critical theory's role in this discussion, and I stand by my criticism of critical theory. However, in my critique, I did share the areas where the Christian vision of justice finds commonality with critical race theory, with CRT. So unlike the criticisms it is receiving in many conservative circles, I'm not dismissing the theory altogether as something we can't learn from and agree with. But yes, I still find the theory very uh, concerning, particularly, and this is important, when it moves from a social theory to a social religion, which I think is the real problem taking place. And I got into that a little bit in my critique of critical race theory, but I I don't know if I made that point clear enough. My, My biggest concern is less about the theory and more about the theory becoming a social religion that our irreligious society is turning to. Now, having said that, what I did not anticipate happening is that after I recorded my podcast, uh, CRT, Critical Race Theory, moved from something that was relatively unknown that I felt like I needed to make known and critique to something that, far from being unknown, is now absolutely dominating conservative Christianity. It's unbelievable what has happened um, and how much this is getting talked about on social media, uh, podcasts being recorded, blog posts, um, entire conferences, statements by the Southern Baptist seminaries, 
repudiating it. I mean, it has completely taken over the race discussion within Christian churches. I did not see that coming when I recorded my podcast, but I should have, which brings me to the point I want to make here. Here we evangelicals go again. Here we go again, finding a red herring enemy to once again keep us from dealing with the real issue, to once again posture ourselves as the vulnerable ones who are under attack, to once again distract us from the cry of the poor and oppressed, to once again stoke the fire of persecution paranoia, to once again neglect the most fundamental call to love our neighbors. Let me be very clear as an on-record critic of critical theory, and I don't regret recording my criticism of it. I think it was important. But let me be clear as one who is obviously on record as a critic of critical theory. If you think that critical race theory is a greater threat than racism itself, then you are recklessly blind to the reality of this country's history. If you found my first podcast where I explain the history of critical theory, if you found that more alarming than the second podcast where I explain the history of America's racism, then something is off, my friend. America's historic sin is not Marxism. It's racism. And woe to us who, out of fear of Marxism, fail to address racism. Marxist ideals will not cure America's ills. I still believe that. But that doesn't therefore mean that America has no ills to cure, and we cannot allow the Marxist boogeyman to keep us from addressing the real problems we have. So that's my first point that I want to make. Cool it with the critical race theory panic and get to work doing Christian justice. Even, and this is my second follow-up point that I want to make, even if that work of justice is done with those who are not Christians, if we are going to be serious about healing what has long harmed our nation, then we are going to have to embrace the collaborative nature of justice. In my third podcast where I talked about a way forward, I briefly mentioned that this is going to take collaboration. And then I offhandedly said that is such a big um, – the idea of collaboration deserves a podcast unto itself because it needs more discussion. So I want to do that now. I want to explain what I'm trying to say here. The scandal of the parable of the Good Samaritan is, of course, that it was the Samaritan who did justice while the priest, in the name of religious fidelity, neglected justice. The primacy of justice demands that we are willing to collaborate with those who are not like us, who do not believe what we believe, whose convictions and worldview we completely disagree with. But because justice is so important, we are simultaneously willing to hold our convictions with uncompromising zeal and lock arms and work together with those we disagree with. The Christian idea of collaborative justice, the biblical notion of collaborative justice, is what was embodied so well in MLK and Martin Luther King Jr. King was a Protestant Christian, but he knew that there was no way civil rights would triumph if he was only willing to work with those who saw things the way he saw things. 
So what he famously did was build broad coalitions representing a wide spectrum of worldviews united together toward one cause. He worked with secular folks, liberals, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Jews, even his enemies. His, his letter from the Birmingham jail was a humble plea with white evangelicals not just to stop opposing him, but to join him. That's the only way things change. When the demands of what is righteous, when the demands of what is just, transcends our fear of somehow compromising our beliefs. But conservative evangelicals are notoriously bad at collaboration. And here's why. We are so obsessed with doctrinal fidelity that we're scared to collaborate with those who don't believe what we believe. And not just non-Christians, by the way, but Christians, Christians of different traditions. So let me ask you a question. Is our theology so fragile that we think by working together with others who don't um, believe what we believe, we are somehow putting our theology in jeopardy? Are we so insecure about our doctrine that we think we're just going to forsake what we believe the moment we start working with those who have different beliefs? If so, then we really don't believe what we believe with the conviction we say we believe it. Can you say, I disagree with the Marxist Manifesto on the Black Lives Matter website, but I will work with people within that movement to improve the impoverished communities of my city. Can you say, I believe the Apostles' Creed? I believe, I believe the tenets of Christianity. Can you say, I believe in, for my particular tribe, the Westminster Confessions of Faith? I'm going to my grave with those beliefs, and I'll work with the secular atheist to overcome systemic evil with systemic good. Can you say, I think the mainline denominations are theologically bankrupt, but I'll work with them to feed the poor? Now, whether they will work with us is another thing. I get that. They may not want to collaborate with conservatives like us, but let it be them who refuses to collaborate and not the other way around. And by the way, just so we're clear, evangelicals are already committed to this. We are very committed to collaborative justice, and we have no problems working with anyone and everyone, no matter what they believe or think, toward a righteous end. And if you don't believe me, i got one word for you abortion. We will work with anyone, no matter how much we disagree with them, no matter how much we find their worldview, their politics, their beliefs problematic. We will work with anyone if they will join with us in the pro-life cause. So perhaps this is an indictment on what we view as worthy of our collaboration and not necessarily a problem with collaboration itself. Okay, third and final follow-up point here that I'll probably spend a little bit more time on. In the third podcast of the series, I detailed the way my tradition in particular, uh, Reformed Evangelical Presbyterianism, um, was not just silent on um, slavery and Jim Crow, but we actually supported it. This seemed to be troubling and even disorienting to many, which I think is a good thing. Outside disturbance invading the echo chamber is good for all of us. It, it was troubling to some to hear, and it led to many questions, uh, not just about our tradition, 
but Christianity in general, to be honest with you. If Christians were the ones enslaving and segregating, then my goodness, what does that say about Christianity? Let me speak to that very, very important question. First, let me just remind us principally that the foundational message of Christianity is God's grace to the worst of sinners. If the truth of our religion succeeds or fails based upon the faithfulness of its following, then it obviously is a miserable failure. But if it depends upon the faithfulness of the one we follow, then our religion is risen from the dead and eternally successful. So I hope the grace of Jesus is scandalous enough to cover the most egregious sins or I myself am in real trouble. But that that gospel word aside, of course I understand how disturbing it is to think of Christian complicity during slavery and Jim Crow. But let me give us a broader perspective here. First, just on a historical and global scale, slavery was normative until Christianity came onto the scene. Abolition was a Christian movement. Of course, there were Christians who resisted it, but it was also Christians who were fighting for it, and such is the complexity of Christianity's history. And that goes for America too, by the way. Since I'm criticizing my tradition so much, let me, let me also say that um, some of the first and fiercest abolitionists in America were New England Calvinists. So, you know, I think it's fair to trace my denomination, the PCA, back to Southern Presbyterianism, but if we keep going back, uh, we land at New England Presbyterianism, the First Great Awakening and whatnot, and there were some slave supporters in that, but some of the fiercest founding fathers that opposed slavery were Reformed Presbyterians in New England. And getting more specific, by the way, one of the unique things about the black Christian tradition in America is that while in most cases black Christians were forced to form their own denominations, that's where we get the AME, the black Methodist denomination, or you got black Baptist denominations and so forth. What's unique about Presbyterianism is that there was never a black Presbyterian denomination formed. Instead, there were black ministers and congregations within the presbyteries of the established Presbyterian church itself in America. Um, so there's a really interesting history to black Presbyterianism that I'm not going to detail here. I'll I tell you what I do. I'll, I'll include a link in the description of a Sean Lucas lecture uh, for those of you who want to nerd out on the history of black Presbyterianism, which I find fascinating. Um, it's an unknown history, but it, it's an important one. But having said that, let's be real here. We can point to some um, New England Reformed evangelical history to make ourselves feel better. But what I detailed in my race podcast remains our history, and it is shameful. Well, here's what I would say. Let us never, ever arrogantly presume that our tradition's history is the only history. I realize that the majority audience of my podcast would probably fit into the conservative evangelical world. More specifically, of course, my congregation, but my denomination, so within the ref- the evangelical conservatism, the Reformed Presbyterian world. So I-, I-, I get that, and that's the history. But let us never presume that our tradition's history is the only history. Make no mistake, Christianity was the predominant paradigm in 19th century America. Yes, of slave supporters, but also of slave abolitionists. Both sides viewed themselves as followers of Jesus. 
And here's where it gets really interesting and complex. Even the slaves themselves, the very ones who should have hated the religion of their slave masters, were followers of Jesus. So let me tell you something. If slave owners wanted to maintain their slave labor, the last thing they should have done is introduce their slaves to Jesus. But that's what they did. They introduced their slaves to the one who was familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. The one who came to set the captives free, to humble the proud and exalt the lowly. And what happened is that Jesus didn't follow the agenda of the slaveholder's religion. What they did is they let Aslan loose on their plantations. (laughs) And the Lion of Judah, in turn, devoured their religious hypocrisy. And so the point I'm making here is that evaluating the role of Christianity in American history is a complicated task. You can't blame it for slavery and Jim Crow, but then not give credit to it for abolition and civil rights. Because it was Christianity that fueled abolition, even as those who resisted it also claimed to be Christians. It was Christianity, particularly the black church tradition, that led the way in civil rights. Why do they bomb black churches? Why not black restaurants, black schools, black sporting events? Why black churches? Because they knew that the movement found its fire within those churches. And so the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, American Christianity has a lot of hypocrisies to confess, just like every nation, every culture. You're not going to name something that doesn't have hypocrisies to confess. But if you broaden American Christianity out, well, then Christianity also becomes the hero of American historical justice. And so bringing it home to us in this hour, make no mistake, Jesus is on the right side of justice. The question for us to answer is whether we who follow him are actually following him. Jesus is making wrongs right. That's what his kingdom does in the world, in this world. Are we faithful citizens of that kingdom? So instead of despairing over our past hypocrisies, which are real, let us learn from them. Let them be our rebuke to make sure that when our story is told, we're the followers of Jesus who are actually following Jesus. Okay, I think that's enough to digest for this episode. I hope those follow-up thoughts um, help the discussion that was started um, months ago with that um, series. And, and who knows, maybe maybe more will be said in the future. Um, but I think that's enough for today. As always, thanks for listening. I uh, would love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Every Square Inch. Every Square Inch.